You're listening to a podcast from the Lakes Church in Cairns, Australia. Thank you, Pat and the team. Good morning. I'm Jeff, and uh, sometimes I mishear song lyrics. I don't know about you, but sometimes I will listen to a song and think I know what it's saying, start to sing along with it, and then find out later, sometimes months and even years later, that I've been singing the wrong words. Does that ever happen to you? This, now, this particular one hasn't happened to me, but this is the best one I, I found online, that in John Bon Jovi's Living on a Prayer, the old song, the line says, it doesn't matter if we make it or not. But some people think the song says and sing along, it doesn't matter if we're naked or not. Now, one of my kids in the song that we sing as a church, this I believe, the creed, the the, the line says, I believe in life eternal. But one of my kids for ages thought it was and sang along singing, I believe in the lovely turtle. Now, one that I did get wrong before we sang it as a church, so obviously before the lyrics are on the screen, I heard it and, and uh, I would sing along to the song Cornerstone and, I, and the, the line actually says, when uh, he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found. That's in the song Cornerstone. But I used to sing, when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may our dead in him be found. That's a bit morbid. But that's the the line that I thought it was. That's what I used to sing. May our dead in him be found. But it made sense to me because of the idea of the resurrection of the dead and of eternal life. And that's where we're going today. What will happen at the end of the world? What will happen at the trumpet sound? What can we expect? What can we predict? And how can we make sense of the weirdest book in the whole Bible? Revelation. But first, before we get to Revelation, we're going to turn to one of the Apostle Paul's letters. Uh, This is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. Paul writes, And now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died, so you will not grieve like people who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. Paul is writing to to that church in Thessalonica and to us to give us hope. There is so much that we don't know about life after death. But we can know with confidence that those who believe in Jesus, who believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, they will also be raised to new life with God. They will return with Jesus when he comes. So that doesn't mean that we don't ever grieve. Death is one of the the worst, most painful parts of our human experience. But it means that as Christians, our grief isn't without hope. Paul continues the very next verse. We tell you this, and Paul and and a couple others are writing this letter together. We tell you this directly from the Lord. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven. And that's, that's what happened. He went up into heaven and the angel said, you'll see him returning the exact same way. So Paul writes that we, that the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and 
first, the believers who have died will rise from their graves. And then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and then we will be with the Lord forever. So encourage each other with these words. So first, Paul says, the believers who have died will rise from their graves. Now, another way of translating that that phrase into English is, first, the dead in Christ will be raised. The dead in Christ is anyone who during their life accepted who Jesus is, who he claimed to be. Jesus, the son of God, Jesus as Lord and savior, they are in Christ. Anyone who makes that decision and accepts Jesus, they are then in Christ. And so that's why I thought the song lyric was, when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may our dead in him be found. Because that's exactly what's going to happen. Now, I hope that doesn't ruin the song for you next time we sing it. But that's exactly what Paul writes is going to happen. Now, we've talked in this series about the the imminent, the any day, any hour expectation of Jesus' return. That he could come at any moment. That we need to be in Christ as we are alive, ready for him to return. He could come in five minutes' time. And we need to be ready. But even if he doesn't come in five minutes' time, even if you know, we are living a life that, that honors him, ready to be caught living that life when he returns, even if he doesn't come in five minutes' time, you or I could die at any moment. And when we die, will we die, as Paul writes, in Christ? Because he says that when Jesus comes back, the Christians who are still alive on the earth won't actually meet him ahead of those who have died but first the dead in Christ will rise from their graves just like Jesus did they will meet Christ in the air and we will be caught up there as well and so we can as Christians not just grieve with hope but also live with hope of that happening now this passage this passage in first Thessalonians and that particular line of being caught up in the air is where Christians get this idea of the rapture now, the word rapture is not in the Bible. It comes from that, that, that passage or that phrase, to be caught up. And then when the Bible was translated into Latin, they used the word which comes from rap, raptus or raptor, which is to seize. Like a bird of prey, a raptor, will swoop down and seize a small animal and then take it away to eat it. That same idea is that the Lord will come and seize, snatch up, grab all of those in Christ, all the believers from the earth, not to eat them, of course, but so they can be with him forever. So now let me just jump in here for a moment. Like I'm only a few minutes in, but let me just jump in and say, if you don't um, consider yourself a Christian, maybe this is the very first time you've ever been in a church service, and maybe um, you're watching online, never ever watched anything from our church before. You know, this is weird. That is the absolute correct response. If you're sitting there, if you're watching and you're thinking, what the, that is the correct response to things like this. This is weird. And, and, and really, to be completely honest, the things that we're going to talk about for the next few minutes today are things that Christians speculate about. They are things that Christians have a lot of different points of view about, but the very basis of it, the very foundation of what we're talking about, we are absolutely convinced of, that Jesus Christ was born, that he lived that he died, and during his life he predicted his own resurrection. And so then when it happened, you know, so many people saw him dead. 
And then over 500 people later saw him alive again, and he's still alive today, and by his own words promises that he is coming back. And he's ready to receive everyone who will accept him as the Son of God, as the one who died and rose again. So the apostle taught that at the moment of Jesus' return, that the dead in Christ will be raised, that the alive in Christ will be caught up in the air. And then he writes in another letter in 1 Corinthians that in the, in the blink of an eye, we will all be transformed, that our mortal bodies, this, this, this flesh and blood that we're in, it is mortal, it is destined to die. It needs to be changed, needs to be transformed, and it will be into an immortal body. Now, the details... The details of how this rapture might happen and the when of when this rapture might happen is a live conversation. Lots of different points of view, lots of different ideas, lots of disagreement. But that central idea that Jesus promised to return and gather to himself everyone who has ever and will ever accept and follow him is agreed on by everyone who ever has followed Jesus and everyone who reads and studies the Bible. But... Will it happen like Hollywood has told us? With the instantaneous disappearing of all Christians while everyone else is left alive on the earth? Are Christians raptured and gone and everyone else is left to face whatever happens in the world? Some horrific trials and tribulations. Or or will the rapture happen later and maybe only momentarily before the very end of the world? Or is Paul writing in a more symbolic way? That he's not talking about a a literal rapture, but he's appealing to what his original audience would have understood whenever anyone important visits a town or a city. In Paul's day, if a dignitary, an emperor or a king, came to visit a town, he would approach, you know, if it was on land, he would approach by chariot, I imagine, through the fields, and people would pour out of the city to to meet this dignitary in the fields. What a celebration. Or if you arrive by boat, you can imagine everyone with a boat, like you see sometimes in Sydney Harbour, everyone with a vessel out in Sydney Harbour to meet this arriving person. And then what, what happens? Then they all come back into the city so they can be together and to celebrate together. Is Paul writing not to highlight the details of a literal rapture, but the promise of Jesus' return and that we will be with him forever in a renewed and a restored creation? I don't know. But Paul is writing to give people hope that Jesus has not forgotten about them and is returning for them so that they will be with him forever. But the when and the how, we're not really sure. In fact, in his second letter to the same church, so 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul writes, for that day, that, 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 idea, that idea of Jesus' return and the rapture, that day will not come until there's a great rebellion against God and the man of lawlessness, he writes, is revealed, the one who brings destruction. This guy, he will exalt himself and defy everything that people call God and every object of worship. He will even sit in the temple of God, claiming that he himself is God. So first of all, Paul says, well, it hasn't happened yet. So don't worry, you haven't missed it. And there are some things, he says, that will happen first. A great rebellion against God, a man of lawlessness, an an antichrist who will bring destruction and even claim to be God, which leads us to the book of Revelation to try and find a little bit more information about what this 
means, what to expect at the end of the world. So will a rapture happen before this great rebellion happens so that Christians are saved from that horrible time? Or or will a rapture happen kind of partway through so that Christians don't have to endure the whole time of rebellion? Or will it happen afterwards so that all of humanity goes through whatever the world goes through and then Jesus returns? Years ago, in our small group, we had finished a particular study. Can't even remember what it was. And so we said to the group, hey, what do you guys want to do next? And there's a few different ideas. And, and um, one young lady said, oh, we could, we could study the book of Revelation. And as the leader, I was like, we could, I guess. A few people nodded. Yeah, that'd be all right. I'm like, okay, that'll be complicated, but very interesting. Let's do that. Now, for completely unrelated situations, that young lady never returned to our small group. And we were left, everybody else, we were left behind grappling with this confusing book. Now, if you asked anyone, whether they're, they're Christian or not, you go out on the street and you ask people, the, the book of Revelation in the Bible, what is it about? Chances are, if they know anything, the answer they will give you is that Revelation is about the end of the world. Most people believe that Revelation is a future book. The mo- for most of the book, it is about what is yet to come, or maybe is what is going to happen now. That the idea of strange beasts and the mysterious symbolism and the ominous signs of doom are all still to come. But the future view of Revelation is only one way to understand this book. Now, let me say that to you again, because you, someone may have never told you that before. The idea of understanding Revelation as something that will happen in the future is only one of the valid ways to understand and interpret the book of Revelation. All throughout history, Christians have understood it in primarily four different ways that we'll get to in a minute. Now, as we talk about Revelation, we're mainly talking about the big middle section. The book starts, the the, the whole book is, is a revelation from Jesus to John the Apostle about himself. We'll talk about that in a little bit. The first three chapters are mainly letters that John received from Jesus to write to churches that were in his area at the time. And then the very end, which we'll get to later, the last two chapters are pretty clearly about the, the new creation, about restored heaven, restored earth, what will happen, you know, the end, what, what heaven is going to be like. But in the middle section, chapters 4 to 20, that's what really shapes how we read and understand Revelation, and that's really where the different points of view are in that big middle section. So over the last 2,000 years or, or 1,900 years or so since John received that revelation and started sharing it and passing it on. There are four main ways of understanding revelation. They each come with some really good points and some points of concern with some strengths and with some weaknesses. So I just want to briefly tell you what the four points of view are before we move on. The first is preterist. The word is not used anywhere else. The word is preterist, and it just means in the past. Now, someone who approaches revelation as a preterist believes that John's audience knew what he was talking about. That the people that first read this letter as John received the revelation, wrote it, sent it out, as they heard it read, they knew exactly what John was talking about. That the symbolism that John writes was a covert, undercover way of talking about the Roman Empire. And so, for example, part of Revelation talks about the beast. And that is usually what people would refer to as the Antichrist. Someone who is anti-Christ, 
more than anyone else has ever been or, or ever will be. Let's have a look in Revelation 13. And the beast, this antichrist, was allowed to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And he was given authority to rule over every tribe and people and language and nation and all the people who belong to this world worship the beast. They are the ones whose names were not written in the book of life that belongs to the lamb, that's Jesus, that was slaughtered before the world was made. A a preterist approach to Revelation and to this passage in particular understands that John's original audience knew exactly who the beast was. Of course, the beast is the Roman emperor Domitian, who had conquered the entire known world, who demanded that people call him the son of God, and who demanded worship of him before you ever entered the marketplace to buy and sell. You would offer worship to Domitian, the Roman emperor, emperor, and you'd receive a mark of incense on your forehead or on your right hand, and that was your ability to buy and to sell. Now, one problem about the preterist approach is we don't know a lot about the first century. You know, apart from what's in the Bible, we've got Josephus, a great historian. We've got a few other historians whose writings have survived, but there's so much we don't know. So did they understand what John meant? How does it line up? Well, we're not entirely sure. But the preterist approach, the in the past approach, is a completely valid way to read and understand Revelation. Now, whether you accept it or whether you reject it does not change God's love for you and your forgiveness by Jesus. But the preterist approach is completely valid and is founded theologically from the Bible. The second one is a, an historicist approach, so a throughout history approach. Now, an, an historicist would say that Revelation was, was going to unfold throughout history, and they can see major trends throughout the history of the world since the first century right through to today and identify, oh yeah, that that meant that thing that we now know in history. And they'll often use the letters at the start as part of this unfolding of history as well. So for example, the beast, the Antichrist, was believed to have been the Catholic Pope. And, and not necessarily a specific Pope, but the, the papacy, the office and the role of the Pope. That the church allowed someone to have so much power and authority, and they used it in such a way, particularly in the 1400s and 1500s, just around the time of the great Protestant Reformation, that the papacy was the beast, was the Antichrist. The great German reformer Martin Luther believed that the papacy was the Antichrist. Now, one problem with the historicist approach is that as history has rolled on and we understand more or we learn more from history, we have to change and update our understanding of Revelation because we've learnt or uncovered or understand new things. But the historicist approach is, again, a completely valid way to understand Revelation. Now, whether you accept it or whether you reject it is not going to change God's love for you and your forgiveness by Jesus, but it's a completely theologically sound way of understanding this weird book of Revelation. Now, the third one is the idealist approach, which just means the, the, the idea or the concept, or it's the spiritual approach. And an idealist will read Revelation as nothing specific or, or grounded in history at all, but it's entirely symbolic and entirely spiritual. Revelation writes about the ongoing battle between good and evil. That there's always this cyclical nature, there's always this up and down of this war raging between God and Satan, between good 
and evil. And it just goes on and on and, and it goes back and forth. And so, for example, just a little bit later on in Revelation 13, we read about the mark of the beast. It says in verse 16, the beast, the Antichrist, required everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be given a mark on the right hand or on the forehead, and no one could buy or sell anything without that mark, which was either, the mark was either the name of the beast or the number representing his name. Wisdom is needed here. Let the one with understanding solve the meaning of the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. If you ever wondered why that number is, is weird, it's because it's right there in black and white in the book of Revelation. Now, an idealist approach to Revelation would say and understand that the mark of the beast is, it has never been a specific thing and it never will be a specific thing, but it represents this idea of people's devotion to something other than God. Now, in the Bible, numbers are super important. The number seven is the number of perfection, the number of God, and the number of six, number six is the number of man or of humanity. And so if you, in an idealist understanding, take on the mark of the beast, you are worshipping humanity rather than worshipping God. One problem with the idealist approach is that if there are past events that we need to understand clearly, or if there are future events to come that we need to be aware of and look out for, then we could miss them if we think revelation is only symbolic and only spiritual. But again, the idealist view is a completely valid way to understand revelation. If you accept it or you reject it, it's not going to change God's love for you and your forgiveness by Jesus, but it is a completely valid and biblically sound way to read this weird book. And the very last one, the very last one is the futurist view of revelation. The futurist approach is that most things in Revelation, particularly in that big middle section, are about future events yet to be fulfilled just before the end of the world. A futurist takes Revelation very literally, that there are specific details and a specific timeline that is yet to happen and could even be happening right now. For example, the beast and the mark of the beast, the beast will be a particular person. The mark of the beast will be a particular thing that is against God. And we need to be aware of that so that we don't fall into the trap of, uh, of everything that goes with that. Now, one problem with the futurist view is that it's produced a whole bunch of news theologians who will superimpose the news, what's happening around the world, onto what's written in Revelation. And they will kind of put that stuff onto current events onto the timeline that they see in Revelation, which is relatively harmless in a lot of cases, but does lead to naming. This person is the Antichrist. And just in, in my lifetime, even just in the last decade, I have heard people who are, are, they're not joking, they're completely serious and completely devoted to God, say with, with everything they believe that Barack Obama is the Antichrist. That Vladimir Putin, someone else will say Vladimir Putin is the Antichrist. Someone else will say that Donald Trump is the Antichrist. And then also the identifying of what the mark of the beast is. Now, this is just before my lifetime, but, but some of you will remember when credit cards came out. Many, many, many Christians believed, and some still do, that credit cards are the mark of the beast. Just two weeks ago, someone sent me a video by a, a, a you know, fairly well-known um, pastor, prophet in the US, who was saying that the COVID vaccine is 
the mark of the beast. And these people are, are very serious and very cautious because if it is, if they're right, then they want nothing to do with these things. So the futurist view is a completely valid way to understand Revelation. It doesn't, if you accept it or reject it, it's not going to change God's love for you and your forgiveness by Jesus, but it is a completely valid way of understanding the book of Revelation. So, which one is right? Which one is best? Which one is most helpful to us? If you've ever thought about Revelation before, if you've ever studied it before, you probably have your own answer. You have the one that you think is the the only right way, or you might stack them in a certain order to say, look, I think there's a little bit of an open approach, but but this one is definitely the most right and the, the one that we should approach first. Now, at the moment, I would say across the Western world, the futurist view is, as I understand, the most common, but the futurist view is really new on the scene of world history. So it only came about in the late 1500s. Someone developed this futurist view of Revelation. Prior to that, no one read Revelation in that way. And it really only came to prominence in the last 200 years and primarily out of America in Protestant and evangelical churches. But the futurist view probably has raised all of the questions that you came here today to hear about. When will the rapture happen? Will there be seven years of tribulation? Will Jesus reign on earth for a thousand years and when will that happen? Is the fall of Babylon in Revelation, is that about Jerusalem? Is that about Rome or is that about some other city? Is the beast a specific person and is there anyone on the world scene at the moment that could be the beast? And what is the mark of this beast and how do I make sure I avoid it? But it's really important for you to know that the futurist view, while completely valid, is only one of the valid ways of understanding Revelation. And it leads to all of those questions that you want answers to. But if you read Revelation through one of the other three ways, you're going to come to a whole bunch of different questions that you want answers to. Now, the historicist view, for a different example, the one throughout history, is, I think, probably the least popular or least common these days. But you know, popularity doesn't mean that something is better or more faithful or more helpful. For me, personally... I would say that primarily I'm a preterist in the past. I think that John's original audience knew for the most part exactly what he was writing about. But that doesn't mean that that I'm right and the other views are wrong. That's just the the way that I, I read Revelation primarily. And it helps John's readers immensely to see this stuff written or, or for them to hear it as a revelation from Jesus about the horrible stuff that they were going through. And it can give us hope and confidence today in God's ability to battle evil and eventually be victorious. But there are stacks of people that I love and people that I respect that hold a different view that has its own strengths and weaknesses and that will lead you to different conclusions. There's one more way. And maybe you go, eh, none of those. Maybe this fifth way is the way that really resonates with you. It's a more eclectic way beyond those four categories where you might try and take some principles from different ones and lean on the strengths of different parts of the different views because you don't have to fit in someone's nice, neat, systematic theology category. So Revelation for sure does address first century Christians First, that's everything about the Bible was written for the people that it was first written for. 
It's all relevant to us today, but everything about the New Testament was written first to people in the first century. So we should read Revelation in that sense like we read every other book of the Bible to understand that first and then understand what that means for us today. Revelation also presents timeless, idealist, spiritual truths. And whether we see specific things playing out or not, it always helps us fight against complacency that evil is all around us. And always helps us have confidence in God because he is always victorious no matter what. And eventually he will defeat evil once and for all. And Revelation definitely has something to say about things that are still to come. And so we can look ahead to the future and Revelation will help us prepare and rely on God as we look forward to Christ's return. Him coming with judgment. His invitation to everyone to accept him and then live with him in this new creation. Now, maybe the fifth view, maybe the eclectic view is the right one. Maybe we should all be more eclectic in our understanding of Revelation. Well, well not necessarily, because we might miss some other thing. But the centrality of Revelation, the most important thing that all Christians agree on is that Jesus Christ will return with victory and with judgment. There's this hip-hop artist in the U.S., Shay Lin, and he includes a line in one of his songs, and uh, if I could rap, I'd rap it for you. But he says, even if we disagree, true believers hum with me. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. That's the centrality of Revelation. Because most of all, Revelation is about Jesus. It's in the name and it's in the introduction. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, John writes that this is a revelation from Jesus Christ, which also means this is a revelation of Jesus Christ. Not only does it come from Jesus, it's also about Jesus, which God gave him to show his servants the events that must soon or suddenly take place. He sent an angel to present this revelation to his servant, John, who faithfully reported everything he saw. This is his report of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Revelation is the revelation of and from Jesus, given by Jesus and is also a revealing of Jesus. Revelation is in a genre of writing called apocalyptic literature which is different from any other part of the New Testament. And apocalyptic just means a a revealing, an unveiling. It's like an opening of a door or it's like an opening of a book. Revelation is apocalyptic in that it reveals more about Jesus. So if you are reading Revelation and you're not discovering more about Jesus, appreciating more about Jesus, then no matter what lens you're looking through, you're reading it wrong. Revelation is about Jesus. There are so many variations on the approaches that we've talked about today. But the point is to take confidence in the certainty that Jesus is coming back in victory to make all things new. Right near the very end of the book, this is Revelation chapter 21. John writes of what he saw, I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them. And they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I'm making everything 
new. Doesn't matter what approach you take to Revelation, you're going to find in this book that things get really bad. And then you find God winning. And then in the next bit, you find things get even worse. And then God comes, God turns up and God wins again. And then things get unimaginably even worse. And then again, God comes with victory and he wins again. Now, is that already happened in history? Is that happening right now? Is it only symbolic? Is it going to happen in the future? It, it, it doesn't matter. God wins no matter what. And the very final vision in this book, which we've just read one small part of, is a vision of victory and it's a vision of renewal and it's a vision of perfection. This vision of new creation, of God recreating the world and the heavens and our bodies is is perfect. This is how God originally created the world to be. Before sin entered in and, and ruined everything, this is how God meant the world and our lives to be. Living like we have never lived before, with all tears gone, all death gone, all sorrow and crying and pain gone from any awareness or reality, life in all of its fullness forever. Now, there's so much that we don't know about heaven. It's even less that we know about hell. But Jesus invites us to become one of his people, as we just read about from Revelation 21. That God will be with his people. And the invitation from Jesus and what he achieved on the cross is the the ability for us to call on him and become one of his people. To accept him as the son of God and to be forgiven, to be made new, to be made right with God. And he promises that he's coming soon, coming suddenly to make everything else right and everything new. So I want to finish today in this series in the way that we started the series. Are you ready? If Jesus was to come back in five minutes' time, are you living the kind of life that you'd be happy caught living? If you were to die on the way home, Would you be ready? Would you be in Christ, as we talked about before? Today, as far as you know it, with your relationship with God and with your life, are you ready? I want to give you a moment now in prayer to say anything that you might want to say to him, to do any getting ready work that you might feel like you need to do. And and if you're not really sure where to start or, or what to say in prayer, I'll help you. But first, let's just start with some silent prayer. So you've got some space in the quietness of your heart to say anything that you might want to say to him. And then I'll lead us after that.
There could be someone here today that, that you're not sure if you're ready. The thing we talked about before about being in, in Christ, whether you're alive or, or whether you're dead, you're, you're not sure. I just want to pray a prayer right now that you could follow along with me and agree with me if this is you. Say, Jesus, I thank you that you lived and died and rose again. And that when you died, you died for my forgiveness so that I could be forgiven and right with God. I accept you as my Savior and as my Lord. And I want to be found in you. Whenever I die, whenever you come back, I want to be found in you. And it could be someone here today that, you know, you, you've already made that decision. In, in one sense, you are in Christ, but you're not really sure if, if your life backs that up and, and what that means. How far is too far? Have I, have I done too much? Have I walked too far away? And again, I just want to pray. And if you, if you would like to, you can follow along with me and agree with me. Say, Jesus, thank you that I, that I already in some way understand what you've done for me. And I want to thank you again for that. And I need your help to live in you. To live a life that is completely committed to you. I really struggle. I feel like I fail all the time. But I want to live that way and so I ask for your help. And I recommit myself to you today.